Good morning. How are you, Carl? I'm doing fine. Uh, welcome to my podcast, Life and Biography. We're going to be talking about your book, uh, A Place Like Mississippi. But before we talk specifically about that book, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you've written, and then how you came to write this book. Um, well, I would say that most people would categorize me as a memoirist. I, my first book, Ever's a Long Time, is a memoir of my growing up in Mississippi and how that is tied up with the history of the civil rights movement, particularly the Mississippi State Sovereignty Commission, which I learned really informed much of my childhood in Mississippi and that they spied on my parents. Um, the Sovereignty Commission was Mississippi's spy agency during the civil rights movement. And you know, my second book, The House at the End of the Road, was probing a question that my editor asked me in my first book when I wrote about my grandparents, an interracial couple in Alabama who married around 1915, and asked me, well, could you tell me more about them? And I said, well, this is all I know. So I set out to learn as much as I could about them by finding as many people as I could who once knew them interviewing my mother and her siblings and trying to piece together this life um, in this photograph that now hangs in my home. You know, who's the story of the man in the photograph? Hmm. That's a kind of, we, I haven't done as much as I'm, I hope to do in this podcast with the, really the connections between memoirs, autobiography and biography. It seems to me you're doing both here because uh, you're investigating a past. It's in part your family's past or the, the state's past as well. Um, but you're also interviewing people. You're doing oral history. You're doing the kinds of things that biographers do. Yes. I mean, one of the things that I, I think about it with, with the work that I, uh, I do is I use two things very often. I interviews and oral histories, <clears throat> and I use the landscape itself as an archive. And I think the reason those work together well for me is that when you're collecting an oral history, you're creating your own archive. And it's the same thing when you're using place as an archive. You are creating your own. And <clears throat> what I also like to do with that material that I'm collecting is then go to the physical archive and see how that informs actually what I find. Yeah, that's very much working like a biographer. It reminds me of Robert Carroll saying, you can't, you can't write a biography without a sense of place. I think that's very true. I mean, it's, uh, it's one of the, the things that you know, right now I'm writing about the Mississippi Delta, but I'm doing that from Cambridge, Massachusetts, looking outside right now, it's snow piled up outside mm. window, and just just like Absalom and Absalom. I'm really, <laughs> um, I think, six blocks from the Anderson Memorial Bridge. Wow! Yeah. So it's like I I cross that bridge a lot to kind of place myself in like this is how a displaced Southerner feels. Right. I've lived in the North for much of my adult life, this feels very different. And to get myself into the Delta, it was going into the archive of the work of 
June Jordan. Oh, yeah. Who's mm-hmm. out of time in Mississippi in the early 1970s. And that has been my entry point into it and kind of to keep myself rooted in the place because going through her notebooks and seeing what it was that she saw and realizing that, you know, when I, I went a few weeks after my first trip into the archive, I realized I was seeing the same things. Going to a place, whether it's your place or a, a biographer going to a place that might not be his or her place, that is not where they've grown up. Uh, and if you interview people in that, that place, it stirs up uh, often all sorts of memories and connections that, that uh, were not foreseen. I remember years ago um, visiting Detroit when I was uh, working on my mailer biography and I was invited to give some talks in bookstores. And I hooked up with some high school uh, classmates that I hadn't seen since I graduated from high school. And they began talking about people and suddenly I began remembering those people, you know, that, that if I hadn't been in that place and you would ask me, who did you go to school with? Those names would not have come up. And did you go to high school at Cass by chance? No, I didn't. Actually, I went to Nolan Junior High School and then my family moved to the suburbs. But I had lots of friends who went to Cass Technical High School. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because that's from my time in Ann Arbor. Lots oh, uh-huh. of my friends in Michigan were cast graduates. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very famous high school, actually. And, and quite, uh, it was a, quite a wonderful thing to go there. But my family moved out of the city, so I didn't get that opportunity. Now, the title of your book, A Place Like Mississippi, uh, someone might look at that and say, well, okay, uh, but it has a specific meaning, actually, and it comes from somewhere. Well, um, for many years, it has been, um, it's been assigned to William Faulkner. Yeah. As I was writing the book, I had the um, great pleasure of having my friend Ted Atkinson do a review of it. And he said, no, it's really not. From (laughs) Faulkner said, no one's been able to do that. And I, I said, well, who said that? And well, some people think it may have been Willie Morris. So, oh, so my um, when I taught at Millsaps College, I rented a garage apartment from Willie's widow Joanne, and and I asked Joanne, and she said, "Yeah, it's in my Mississippi." And when I asked Willie about it, he said, "Well, Faulkner should have said that." <laughs> yes, there are a lot of things attributed to Faulkner that he should have said. Yeah. But I, but I always, I always joke that that's Willie Morris al- almost prank calling us from the grave. Yeah, us that yeah, Faulkner should have said it, but I had to kind of do a little bit of, you know, detective work to find out. Well, how did this get attributed to Faulkner? And that was that was really the the clue. There was it was it was Willie Morris, and I and I I do think there's a lot that people think Faulkner said that he didn't necessarily say and that's one of them but it's also very true i do think there's so much we can learn from mississippi that tells us a great deal about this country and particularly the ways that we have 
confronted uh, issues of race and poverty. And Mississippi is, I mean, it's, um, it becomes a flashpoint for, for looking at those issues. And what I think all too often we do is we like to think of those as either a problem created by Mississippi or created by the South. And that is partly true. That is only partly true. But it's really an American issue uh, that we like to try to place onto the South. Uh, and yes. And that's one of the things that I, I, I became very much aware of here in Boston as I you know, traveled around Boston and, and I realized I'd left the land of Confederate statues and now was in the land of the abolitionists. Yes. There was a very different narrative that was being told here, but there was still a narrative of exclusion. So that idea of the way that we memorialize is and you're leaving things out of our memorials is not unique to the American South. It is an American problem. It's just that it manifests itself in a way that is much more insidious in, in the South than it did in the North. Right, right. Um, one of the things your book, A uh, Place Like Mississippi, is, at least for me, is it's a kind of road trip through the state. And I have to confess that I listened to your book while I was driving, not in Mississippi, but here in Southern New Jersey. Uh, and it's, it's a wonderful book to listen to. Of course, it's a wonderful book to read, but it's accessible on a lot of different levels. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because one of the things that I wanted to do is I actually wanted to do the narration. And, and my wife, who is a knitter, said, no. <laughs> you know, <it's laughs> My a, wife does needlepoint. <laughs> it's, a, it's a professional actor's job. You're not a professional actor. Yeah. And what I, I did do was there was a lot of pronunciation that I had to provide to the actor. Sure. Um, I will have to tell you there is one pronunciation I neglected to uh point out to the to the actor and that is Lafayette versus Lafayette yes I noticed that yeah <laughs> I I forgave the narrator for that I figured that was a slip yes I, I've heard from a lot of Mississippians about that <laughs> I'll bet <laughs> Ralph how dare you <laughs> well you know it's something I have to say Carl I didn't know that it was pronounced that way until I went to the University of Mississippi in 1974. Uh-huh. Grew up in South Mississippi, about a hundred miles from New Orleans. I grew up listening to New Orleans radio. So it would be Lafayette Street. Sure. Uh, so when I thought I was going to um, University of Mississippi in Oxford in Lafayette County, and I was immediately corrected. Well, that's one of the things that people learn from your book, in a sense, is that they think Mississippi, deep south, uh, and that's the end of the story, so to speak. And yet there, there are many different Mississippis. They, they, there may be a unity there you know, of effect, but certainly the Delta is not, is not like Oxford, Mississippi. No, I mean, there are a lot of different Souths, and I am from the Piney Woods, um, the same place that, um, you know, 
Faulkner um, literary scholar Noel Polk is from. And Noel's memoir, um, Beyond the Southern Myth, became a guide to me thinking about the place that I was from. And he said, you know, we grew up in a place beyond the Southern myth. There are no, can, there are no Civil War battles fought there. And for the most part, in a lot of, there are no Confederate statues. So we, you know, there are no towns with courthouse squares either because right. towns were started post-Civil War and along the railroad. So mm. the railroad is a much more prominent feature of a, of a town uh, and that, that station than anything else. So having grown up in a place that's in the South, but it's kind of outside of the mythology of the South, and then arriving in a place imbued with a great deal of that mythology. When I arrived at the University of Mississippi, it's, it's a very different place. And it's not that far away from where I yeah. go. Yeah, I think that's uh, other states have, I think, have that kind of breakdown, too, between North and South, but even more, you know, more fragmented than that, to be sure. Different parts of the state are, are people lead, in a, in a way, different lives. Now, one of the things your book uh, talks about in terms of the Mississippi landscape is you play with these terms real and imaginary. And, of course, that gets you to the writers, too. Yes, because I realized that um, going through the landscape and reading a, a particular writer can serve as a guide to that real place. You know, going to Meridian, Mississippi is a way of entering Brad Watson's town of Mercury. Um, you know, Eudora Welty's Jackson and the Jackson that she creates in her fiction are the places that are really a composite of a lot of different um, places. Like Morgana is really an amalgam of the Piney Woods, the Delta and Jackson um, with a little bit of Natchez thrown in there for good measure. So the ways that these real places shape these imagined places and then also thinking about the way that description is very much a part of the way you enter a place. I mean, the, the, the experience that I had was the, that was the most profound was reading, rereading Ann Moody's Coming of Age in Mississippi and then going down the Ann Moody Highway uh, in Wilkinson County, not that far from the Louisiana border, and trying to find this spot where I believe the shack was and that she grew up in. So I found this pond. I just was following the descriptions. And to kind of fact check myself, I then went to someone who has done a lot of work. And I said, here's a picture of where I think it is. Is this the place? And he said, yes. And he sent me another picture. And it was the same thing. Mm -hmm. It was that by following what it was that she, she was taking you on this journey, you could figure out where it was. And this is, and I'm doing this 60 years after she's written this book. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think someone um, hearing about your book and knowing that there are writers in it, they'll think about Faulkner. They'll think about Welty, uh, perhaps Richard Wright, um, Willie Morris, perhaps. Uh, but you don't limit yourself to those writers. 
No, I really tried to bring in writers that I I thought that people should engage with, um, like Ellen Douglas, um, whose short stories I really um, became enamored of as I was working on on this book and finding out this the story behind or William Attaway, also from the Delta, who is a contemporary of Wright's, whose Blood on the Forge uh, really had an impact on me. It's a book that is the the characters that come from Kentucky move to Pittsburgh to work in the the um, the steel factories there. And yet the place that he says is Kentucky feels a lot more like the Delta because that's the place that he knew. Ah. And that's when I realized this is, and I was introduced to that book by a bookseller at a bookstore in Greenwood. And I, and I said, I'm, said, I'm really trying to find as much as I can about black writers from the Delta. And he said, you need to read Blood on the Forge. Mm. And I really, I went home that night and I read it right away. And and also Hubert Creekmore, you know, trying to bring in not only black writers but queer writers as well. Who yeah yeah, and wanting to make sure that that we knew as much about this landscape as we could. And and one of uh, my colleagues at the University, Mary Stanton Knight, had done a documentary about Hubert Creekmore, and that was that really introduced me to Creekmore, got me into his work and and actually going into um, the archive at the University of Mississippi and reading some of his his fiction. Yeah, he's in Pip Gordon's book too, Gay Faulkner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I so I tried not to limit myself to the canonical writers, but I wanted to expand what the canon included. And I think more important, I wanted to change the way we think the origins of that canon, or I should say the new canon, begins, which is why I chose to begin the book on the Gulf Coast rather than in the Delta. One of the other things you do in your book uh, is you sometimes quote or refer to Natasha Trethewey. Yes. And it seems to me that that you use her almost as a kind of refrain. And uh, just the name itself, I think, is entrancing. <laughs> I Go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I wanted you to respond. I, you know, I, I teach um, Natasha's work a great deal in my Southern Studies class on Southern memory and identity, because that's at the core of her work, that memory and identity, um, you know, being a mixed race person from, from the South, from Mississippi, right. made her parents' marriage a crime, something that I really connect to from my own family. So Natasha's point of view about Mississippi, this, this tug of war between loving it and hating it, is I think something I connect with personally. And so in many ways, her poetry, I mean, when I, I have to say, when I'm struggling, when I was struggling 
writing this book, I would go back to Native Guard. I would, you know, go back to some of her um, other, you know, poems, you know, like from domestic work. And she would, the language that she uses is so precise and so lyrical. It, it became, it became a bit of a, a talisman for me for this book. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I also wanted to, uh, you'll have to forgive me because this is my course obsession, Faulkner. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was very interested in what you had to say about Charles Bond, who uh, the two of the narrators in the novel, uh, uh, Quentin Compson and Shreve McCannon, uh, identify with as a mixed race person. Uh, he's, to me, he's maybe the most fascinating character Faulkner ever created. The reason I feel that way about him, some personal reasons, but uh, one of the reasons is because um, he, Faulkner has him write a letter in this novel, Absalom, Absalom. And that letter is so wonderful, so evocative. Uh, and it's written with an intelligence that's every bit on the level of William Faulkner's own intelligence. And I just, it just thrills me, that letter. And, and the, the way he treats that character is just fascinating. I can't think of another example in, in American literature of anyone quite like that. No, there's, there really is not. And, and I think part of my connection with Bond as a character has a great deal to do with being an alumnus of the University of Mississippi and thinking about make, making me wonder how many other, how many Charles Bonds went through the University of Mississippi? Oh yeah, yeah. And, and I guess that's what I, that's part of my, um, my interest in, in Charles Bond. And, and then I think also, I find him fascinating, but also, you know, for me, the character of Joe Christmas. Oh, is, sure, yeah. And is another, another fascinating character. And I, I often tell my my students that when you walk down Jackson Avenue in Oxford, you're taking the Joe Christmas walk. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it's um, uh, you know you 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 write about identity, and um, I'm not from the South. I didn't grow up in the South. Uh, and I've often wondered why did I connect with Faulkner uh, so strongly and so intensely over so many decades now and then wrote his uh, biography. Um, and part of it, and I've only come to this realization lately, is I'm not a mixed race person. So I don't want to make my experience the, the equivalent of yours or anyone else's. But in this country, uh, people are identified sometimes by the color of their skin, sometimes by their last name. Uh, if you have a Polish name, for example, um, my, I'm half Polish. My mother's family was Polish. My father's family was West Virginia, Thomas Sutton kind of <laughs> West Virginia. And uh, I grew up with that kind of um, tension in the family. Uh, and um, no one would, I don't think, either look at me, and certainly not my name, Rollis, and say, oh, yeah, he's half Polish. <laughs> In a way, I guess what I'm saying is 
in a way, I've been passing, if you see what I mean. <laughs> it's not the same. I'm not, I'm not putting myself on the same level in the same category at all, but I'm saying I can sort of understand this. And I, that is why I, when young people say, why read Faulkner today? It's, you know, the world is, is so different. I say, but yes, but there's so much we can learn from that past that really helps us understand our present. And those tensions that are there uh, are universal. Or, you know, for example, people will say that they were only thinking regionally. That it's that you know, Faulkner was a regional writer. I think Edmund Wilson, you know, famously saying that about him. And Eudora Welch, yeah. I'm being very upset by that, and said no. And I, again, it is the South tells us so much about America. I think we tend to dismiss it because it comes from the South. But there's so much of the South in this country. Well, I heard a very funny story just the other day by um, a um, biographer who's doing a book on the poet William Stafford. And he said William Stafford had a um, definition of a national writer, not a regional writer, but a national writer. A national writer is a regional writer who happened to have been born in New York. <laughs> Oh, that is just priceless. That is that, <laughs> that is that's so incredibly true. I never really thought of it that way, but that's yes. And when Faulkner was reviewed, for example, I'm we're getting a little off the point here, but uh, maybe. But um, when he was reviewed by someone like Edmund Wilson or even Elizabeth Hardwick, who had grown up in Kentucky and who then moved to New York and became more in New York than the New York, most New Yorkers. They completely misconceived a novel like Intruder in the Dust. They, you know, they, they assumed all sorts of things about, well, Faulkner was trying to get people to believe this, that, and the other. Uh, and, and I think the novel reads, at least in, in my view these days, a lot different from the way they looked at it at the time and, you know, in the perspective of what they thought civil rights should be and who Faulkner was and who he was as a Southerner and so on. To just read the novel, I think, is a very different experience. Um, yes, they, it, it tells us so much about the ways we 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 think about the world. But I, I, you know, thinking about someone like Elizabeth Hardwick, not you know, misinterpreting Faulkner, and thinking about the Southerner who leaves the South and goes to the North. There's always a sense of exile. And there's always this sense that you are trying to strip yourself of that otherness that people see in the South. And I'm someone who did strip that away. Uh, as I you know, tell people, you know, I, I paraphrase Zora Neale Hurston, you know, I, I took the map of Mississippi off my tongue. Mm -hmm. Lots of people do that, but they also do it in very psychic ways. And I, and I, think the reason that I write about the South, I told people, it's it's a search for home. And you don't go searching for home unless you're lost. And I think that in a lot of ways, being living in the Northeast, kind of taking on the accent of the Northeast, all of those things that 
I was stripping this out the way, I had to reclaim a part of myself in middle age to, to really feel at home in both places. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I remember when I was in high school, I brought home a friend of mine, my mother who had been born in this country, but my, my grandparents, my mother's parents were Polish. And uh, after uh, this friend visited our home, we were walking out and he turned to me and he said, is your mother a foreigner? And I was just absolutely stunned. Um, I never thought of my mother as having any trace of an accent, but he detected one clearly. Um, it's, 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 you know, in reading your book, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say and bringing in my own experiences is it does that, I think, to the reader or the listener to your book. They begin to think about this journey, this road trip that we all take, whether it's in Mississippi or not. Yes, and we all take that trip in one way or another. It may be Mississippi, but it, it could be Colorado or Wyoming. Uh, or, or, I mean, I think about Joan Didion in California. Um, so we all are on that, that journey in one way or another. And we're always looking for a place where we feel at home. And a lot of us, certainly not all of us, but a lot of us are, whether we think of it or not, we are displaced persons. Yes, we are. Yeah, we are all displaced persons. And I have, you know, jockeyed around, you know, the world from, you know, leaving Mississippi, um, spending some time in England before going to Michigan, then living in Washington, D.C. for many years and now back to Mississippi and now in Massachusetts. Um, people ask, you know, where is home? I said, well, I really, I, it's two places. <laughs> And I, you know, I'm very comfortable in both Washington, which is, I think at one time was a Southern city, but is no longer one. And in Mississippi. Yeah. And learning how to, um, to feel comfort in both of those places. And, and in so many ways, this writing this book really helped me uh, come to terms with Mississippi in ways that even writing my first memoir did not. I think that it's, it is a, it is a continuous journey. It's not like at one point there's this reconciliation, as I said earlier, you know, whenever you leave a place and you return to it, you have this permanent sense of exile and you're always trying to, um, connect with it. But I, what I, say as a writer is that that sense of exile becomes the way that I look at the place and that and that helps me um, to perhaps see things that maybe people who did not leave um, don't see. Um, I mean, I have a young woman from Mississippi who's a research assistant for me this semester who's asking for, for advice, um, you know, should I go back to Mississippi right after graduating from Harvard? And I said, I know you want to go back to Mississippi, but don't do it right away. You know, you spend a little time away. And then if there are things that you really think you want to do in Mississippi, you'll get a better sense of that 
away from Mississippi than you will when you're there. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was true in Faulkner's case. You know, he went to Europe. He doesn't start writing what we think of as Faulkner, as, as the Yachnapatofa novels, until he's been to New Orleans, but then much further away in, into France and Italy and England. Yes, and, and you know, even that time in, in New Orleans, because yes, we think of, the, of New Orleans as, as a southern city, but it's really the Car Caribbean. <laughs> yes, yes. How could he possibly have written Absalom, Absalom if he hadn't lived in New Orleans? He couldn't have. I don't see how. Uh, so it is, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, my, one of my dear college friends, Steve Yarborough, um, novelist from Mississippi, lives here in Boston, teaches at Emerson College, said to me, he said, you, know, you are the least likely Southern writer. <laughs> one that I, I, I know. Um, and he's exactly right. I mean, he said, I, he said, I remember you reading eminent Victorians as an undergraduate <laughs> who was to be writing about the South. You were trying to get out of the South. And he said, yeah. that's what I always knew about you. <laughs> and it's true. Um, but maybe it is that way of trying to get out of it and, and then being pulled back into it. Um, so it's, 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 it's a bit like the mob. You know? Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, you're back I, in. I can see that. What should I have asked you that I didn't ask you? Um, I mean, I'd love to talk about parchment, actually. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I have to say that one of the struggles that I had with this book was how to end it. Mm -hmm. And... I was, you know, quite frankly, struggling with, well, I can't really just kind of end in, in, the, in the Delta and with the writers without kind of in some way recognizing or acknowledging the pain on that landscape. And I was driving past parchment on one of my trips through the Delta. And it occurred to me that people inside there who were writing and I, and I'd read their writing and that's what, you know, really motivated me to go to um, Louis Bourgeois prison writing class at parchment and to begin to talk about the work of Etheridge Knight too. And then I wanted not only to connect parchment and the Delta, but I also was trying to, connect the, the writing of Mississippi with a national issue, which is mass incarceration. Yes, yeah. And I don't think anyone, you could say more about parchment. I, I don't think anyone reading Faulkner now and seeing those references to parchment will ever feel the same way about it once they know what you've written about it. Well, I mean, Faulkner was one of the ways that I kind of, entered into it, thinking about it as destination doom. Mm -hmm. And, and then also, you know, interviewing, and this, I guess I was really putting this together because when I interviewed Jessamyn Ward, I said, I noticed that there's a, there's a real change in your characters when they are out of South Mississippi. And Jessamyn said, well, I was told 
that you can't really trust anything in Mississippi north of Hattiesburg. Ooh. And and I and I thought, well, that's true. And if if you've grown up in the coastal landscape and you end up in the Delta, it is going to feel so incredibly foreign. And I was trying to, in some ways, kind of echo you know what she talked about in um, in her book and that experience of going to, to Parchment and then maybe connecting the coast and the Delta in some way. I was, I think that's what I was really, you know, trying to connect the beginning and the end. And mm -hmm. Parchment became my entry point to that. But what I was not expecting was the profound influence that going into Parchment would have on me. And that was, I think so often, you know, every writer thinks you're going into to write a chronicle of something, a chronicle of a place. And, and as journalists, you're supposed to be, you know, be able to separate yourself from it. But there I really couldn't. And it became, it became very personal for me because I asked myself, Am I like Etheridge Knight's wasp woman? Mm -hmm. Coming here, taking something from these people or doing something to feel good about myself. Asking myself a lot of questions that were uncomfortable, but also made me think about the work of the men who were there. And it made me begin to think about the reasons that they were there, which had a lot to do with circumstances outside of those walls that they you know they didn't get the type of education they they should have gotten as kids they were in, they were kids who may have been trouble have trouble fidgeting in their chairs they were not traditional learners but you could go in and talk with them about de profundis and they or they you know talk about um, you know Foucault on, on prisons and you have this, this type of conversation that you would have in a graduate seminar. Yeah, and yeah. That I wanted that to come out because we, in Mississippi and throughout this country, so much of our, I, I believe, so much of our prison problem is an education problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's uh, interesting that you say that uh, back in uh, the 1970s, early 80s, I taught at Wayne State University in Detroit. I used to organize weekend conferences about the arts. And uh, more than once, we brought in Etheridge Knight <laughs> because, I mean, he could connect. I mean, this one, this is someone who had the experience, but also had the words. Yes. And, and I often think about this, had Etheridge Knight committed the same crimes in Mississippi, would we know a poet by the name of Etheridge Knight today. Yeah, yeah. Because he, I think what he, the attention that he was given, the exposure he was given to literature in that prison in Indiana changed his life. Yes. Um, and he would not have had that at Parchment. Yeah, it's a remarkable story. Yeah. Both Knights and Parchments. Yeah. What else should I ask you? Anything else? 
Um, no, I can't think of anything really. Okay, because I don't, I don't want to leave you. Uh, I don't want you to leave the podcast dissatisfied. No, I'm not, not just <laughs> at all. No, not at all. Okay, no, it, it's been a pleasure. Uh, as I say, this is a book to read. This is a book to listen to. This is a book to reread. I think uh, just a marvelous experience. Well, thank you very much, Carl. I'm... Thank you, Ralph. And uh, I'm going to be posting this podcast shortly so that you can broadcast it to the world. Okay, wonderful. Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye-bye.